Well, I love that line. It's a song from David Wilcox. You cannot exchange empty for empty. And he starts wrestling at the beginning that the people in his life, he can't seem to fill them up. And then he begins to reflect on the fact that he's got the same problem. That is a break in his cup. And though he's trying to find meaning and purpose, he's realizing he's broken. The people around him are broken. And they need to find a, a waterfall that could fill them up so they could give to each other rather than try and take from each other. I heard a marriage counselor one time say that most marriages have a tick-on-dog relationship. One person trying to suck the blood out of one other person. He said, the problem is, as a marriage counselor, most of the marriages I've come across is two, tick, two ticks and no dog. <laughs> two people trying to get their needs met without having a resource at which to give to each other. And that Bob Dylan song that uh, shapes the, the topic for today is uh, Knock Knockin' on Heaven's Door. I think that song, which you heard from, uh, from Mike in the video, is a guy who said, I just keep knocking, I keep searching, I keep trying to find meaning and purpose and satisfaction. And I realize there's something broken in me, something traced back to the past. Sometimes it's just everything's gone well. I've got all the abundance. I've achieved all my goals. But even if, if everything's accomplished, I don't quite seem satisfied. And what we're going to find is that there's a man in the Bible named Solomon, incredible leader, Incredible entrepreneur, a poet, uh, a writer, uh, incredible builder and architect. And he says, in the same way that Bob Dylan said the answers were blown in the wind, I found that trying to find them, and I had the resources to look, was like blowing in the wind. It was like grasping after the wind. And yet I kept at it. I'm a type A driven guy. I was going to find it. If somebody was going to find it, I was going to find those answers. So I just kept knock knocking. I just kept knock, knock, knocking until I found heaven's door. I'm going to find what matters. I'm going to find what really satisfies. That's what we're going to find in the passage today, that all of us are going to keep knock, knock, knocking until we're knocking on heaven's door and finding that eternal thing that meets that eternal hole, that break in the cup in each one of us. If you're a writer, if you're a reader of sort of classic literature, you remember what Horace said, the classical writer. He said, no one lives content. He couldn't find anyone in his days who had a deep sense of contentment. How about Wallace Stevens in writing one of his classic pieces of literature speaks of a woman who says, even when I find contentment, this is the main character of his story, even in contentment, I still have this need for imperishable bliss. Even when I find something I'm going to be content with, I know it's going to perish. I know I can't keep it. I have this longing for something imperishable to build my life and my happiness and my joy upon. Or how about Norwegian playwright Henry Gibson says, When you take away the life lie of someone, they lose all their happiness. But what's a life lie? That's when you say, hey, when I get married, I'll be happy. Then you get married. And you, it's good, but you still got this hole. Well, when I have kids, I'll be happy. Oh, we have our first kid. I'm happy. When don't we get these kids out of the house? Then I'll be happy. When I get my MBA, I'll be happy. When I get my first job, I'll be happy. When I get that title, when I become CEO, when I own my own business, when we have that first home, when we have the first home in Indian Hill, when we have two homes. And what you realize is the life lie is that none of those individual things can bring happiness. And why? They're perishable. They all spoil. All the things of this life that are good things perish and there's a longing in us a break in us to be satisfied by something imperishable everything else in life spoils i remember in high school i uh, was a captain of my speech team and so i was at bradley university and i was uh, competing in a competition called original comedy so I, I wrote my whole piece up and i was sitting across the table that morning 
before the competition began, and I had my bacon and my eggs provided there by Bradley University, as well as uh, some milk I grabbed. And I'm sitting across the table from a girl that I kind of liked but didn't know real well. She happened to be sitting across from me, and, and she said, hey, what, what, what competition are you in? I said, oh, I'm in, I'm in uh, original comedy. Oh, give me some of your stuff. And so I'm going over some of my comedy routine, and she's liking it, and seems like this is going a, a good place, and this is headed the way I want to go. And... And I'm eating my bacon, eating my eggs, and telling my jokes, and uh, I just feel like this is, this is the girl I've been wanting to date. This is really going to work out well. In the middle of that, I, I uh, had a piece of bacon going down the wrong way. <coughs> I had this kind of happen. So I grabbed my milk, popped it open, and slug, 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 slug. The milk got to about here. When... My mouth realized some of it was still in my mouth, and I went... It's at that point my, my throat made a phone call to my brain and says something like, there's something wrong down here. Get this out of here. My brain then sent signals to my mouth and, and immediately all the nerve endings went and little white dots went all over, solid dots I might add, not liquid dots, all over the table. And pure instinct, as I now look at this wonderful woman that will never date me because she now has spoiled milk all over her shirt, and I grab the milk carton and I dump it out right in front of me, just out of pure instinct, Ew, it's horrible. This good thing, check the expiration date, was a while off, let me tell you, had spoiled. Not only had it spoiled, oh my gosh, all day long I was sick through the speech competition, and worse than that, I never got to date what's-her-name because it got wrecked by the spoiled milk. And that's what happens. It's relationships, it's our activities, they're good things, but they spoil they don't satisfy that imperishable need that we have within us. And yet, there's a journey we all go on. And that journey is, how do we find this stuff? Solomon says, I said in my heart, I'm going to find that heaven-sized hole that other people can't fill. I'm going to test with mirth. I'm going to amuse myself. I'm going to enjoy the most amount of pleasure I possibly can to fill it up. Surely this was vanity, though. It didn't satisfy that imperishable need. So I said, I'm just going to laugh a lot. I'm going to surround myself with lots of joy. Good thing, joy, right? It too is like madness. What's it all about? Mirth. What does it really accomplish? So I want to look at two different strategies that I think we've all participated in of trying to, to knock, knock on heaven's door to find that meaning, show you why they don't work and ultimately what does. One is we start knocking on doors, and the other is we give up on the door and we stop knocking. Those are sort of the two processes. But I want to show you that God wants to infuse or blow meaning or purpose into these temporal things so they can be things that don't define you, but you can thoroughly enjoy them because they're filled up with meaning and purpose. In order to do that, uh, one of the challenges of this series has been to see if we can work in a wind experiment each week. And so we're going to do one today. We're going to bring Kenny up. He's going to bring up the green one for our first point. But we need to stop knock, start knocking on heaven's door. And so Kenny's been a musician for many, many years here around uh, Cincinnati. And I want you to try and fill this up with three deep breaths. Just three breaths. See how much you can get in here. Now, he played trumpet for years. Woo! So we're going to see how far he can go here, all right? All right, here he is. Three. You get three. All right. Oh, yeah. Two. All right. So, Kenny trying to inflate his own life. Let's see how you did.
All right, there it is. So all that work, all that effort, all that trumpeting, all that training over the years, and that's Kenny filling up his own life. All right. Now, for the sake of this analogy, I'm going to play God, uh, which seems appropriate. Uh, feed my narcissism here. We're going to do an effect called the Bernoulli effect. Uh, Bernoulli effect. So a scientist named Bernoulli found that uh, one breath could fill this up because you could actually, through one breath, pull in all the other wind you want. So you hold that nice and tight. I'm going to put one breath in. Thank you. Actually, I'm going to use this one later. So now we've answered the question, who has more hot air, a musician or a senior pastor? So can we thank Kenny? Thank you. You can grab a seat. So our first strategy is we say, listen, I tried huffing and puffing. I tried filling up my own life, knocking on doors. Um, but I'm going to go on a journey, and I'm going to start. I'm going to start finding what other people haven't been able to find. And that's exactly what Solomon does. And there's really four versions of this. And I think throughout my life, I've gone through all four versions. I'm going to find that temporal thing that can fill up my life besides God. The first one I want to call the inexperienced door pounder. I'm going to start knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door, but I'm young. And I'm naive. Because I think I just haven't found it yet. And so I tell myself, if I just dot all the I's and cross all the T's, if I get the right relationship, meet the right people, get the right job, I'll eventually get there. And we've all had that stage. And some of us are still in that stage. And I'm just telling you, you don't know how deep your heart is. You don't know how big that break in the cup is. Those great things, those great visions that you have, and they're great. It's naive to think that temporal things, imperishable things, no one in history has ever found a way that these temporal things can inflate your life. Solomon had the same thing. He said, listen, I tried it, and I became that inexperienced, naive door pounder. I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh till I might see what was good. Till, until this, until then I'll be happy. Until then I'll be happy. When I get that, I'll be happy. And then I finally got all that stuff, and I wasn't happy. It didn't fully satisfy. And so he says, that didn't work. So then I moved to the second strategy. Not the inexperienced door pounder, but I said, the angry door pounder, I'll call him. The angry door pounder, where you say, it is out there, meaning and purpose. It is out there, satisfaction. But someone or something is stopping me from getting it. If that boss wasn't holding me back, if that coach saw the potential in my kids... Oh, we'd be happy if we could store the goals and have the position and, and have that thing. And it's out there. I'm knocking for it. But there's something in the way. There's a government policy in the way. There, there's, a, there's a local provision in the way. There's a coach in the way. And you become very angry. Because you know you'd be happy if it wasn't for that thing or that person that's keeping you from having it. i got a friend of mine like this. Every time I sit down with him, it doesn't matter what the topic is. Hey, how's the weather? Did I ever tell you? Yes, you told me. You know, I used to have a seven-figure job. Yeah, I, I know, you've told me. And you know why I don't have it anymore? I do, because of a policy during the Reagan administration. Yes, that's exactly right. And you know what happened? I lost my business in just a few moments. And if, yeah, I, I know, I know, I know. And the anger pouring out about some government policy. And then when I was in my time of need, Christians didn't help me. And just the anger. I'd have what I need. I'd be satisfied. I'm knocking for that heaven's door. But something and someone's in the way in decades of his life have been spent in anger, knowing it's out there, but i got to blame something or somebody. That's exactly what Solomon says here. I searched. How do you lay hold of this? 
And the reason I couldn't lay hold of it was because of somebody or something, some obstacle out there keeping me from getting what I need. At some point you get angry enough, you're like, i got to try something new. So you move to a third strategy. The third strategy is one that I resonate with, and maybe you do. Maybe you're a driven person or a hardworking person. I call this the driven door pounder. You're not going to get angry anymore. You're just going to try harder. And Solomon was a try harder guy. I mean, this guy had access. Look at all the verbs in here. Solomon says, here's what I did. I started knocking for heaven's door, and here's what I did. I made my works great. I was a good person. I built myself houses. I planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards. I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools. I had swimming pools and irrigation places to grow my trees from the grove. I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I gathered for myself silver and gold and special treasures of kings and providences. I acquired male and female singers and delights of the sons of men and musical instruments. I was into the arts. I was into money. I just kept knocking. I'm going to find the right door if I just go hard enough and fast enough. Reminds me of a parable I heard in college. Parables told of a uh, multi-billionaire who in his estate is about to, he dies and he leaves in his will some provisions. A man, a businessman is invited to 6 a.m. that morning and says, here's the provisions of the will. This man had not only lots and lots of money, but lots and lots of land. So before you are a thousand acres behind us, and in the, the will, you have exactly 12 hours and four stakes. You're to pound a stake in the ground, walk as far as you can, put another stake in the ground, walk as far as you can, put another stake in the ground, walk as far as you can, put another stake in the ground, and end up back here. And as much land as you walk will be given to you, but you have to be back by 6 p.m. Go. Oh, my goodness. And this guy like pounds this thing in. He sets his timer to calculate exactly how much he'll need to divide the time up. And he's going. All right. So he's walking. And he's walking. And an hour goes by. And, a, and, and two hours go by. And, and his alarm goes off. Ding, 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 ding. Right about now, you should put in the second stake. Well, yeah, but five more minutes is a lot more land. Ten more minutes would be even more. I think I'll just pick up my pace a little bit. And I, so five more minutes, ten more minutes, 15 more minutes. He's like, all right, this is probably enough. He takes the second stake out. Boom, boom, boom. But now to get to the next corner, he's got to even increase his speed. So now he's running to the second stake. Got his timer going again. He's running. Oh, my goodness, it's hard. He hasn't done this in a long time. He didn't even prepare for this. He was showing up to a will. Oh, my goodness, he's starting to sweat a lot. Hour goes by. Ninety minutes go by. Oh, the alarm goes off. Ding, 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 ding. Well, you know, but he's doing geometry in his head. Oh, he's got 15 extra minutes. So 15. All right, he goes five extra minutes, ten extra minutes. Oh, my goodness, look at that creek. I can't miss the creek. I've got to get to the creek. Five more minutes go by. He gets to the creek. Okay, I'll stop here. Boom, pounds in the third stake. Now he's really got to pick up the speed because now the timing is really working against him. So now he starts running. And again, hour goes by, two hours go by, three hours go by. He gets to the final thing. Ding, 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 ding. Oh, my goodness. But look at that tree. It's all fruit grove. i got to get the fruit grove. And now he's running. His heart is pounding. And oh, my goodness, he's really sweating. He's really not looking good. And he's like, all right, it's 10 more minutes, 20 more minutes. He gets his right hand. He gets there. Pounds it in. He looks at his cock. He's only got 90 minutes to get back to the first stake. And he's like, oh, my goodness, i got to sprint with everything i got. And he is sprinting. I mean, everything he's got, he's sprinting. Heart is pounding. He's sort of losing some feeling in some of his legs. But he's like, i got to make it. He gets there. He's got like, like, like five minutes left, and he can see the finish line. He's like, okay, I just got to get back to the finish line. And he's running, and he's running, and he's chasing. He's like the last hundred yards. He's like, got like a minute left. He can see the timer counting down. He gets there. He's got like 20 feet to go. If he jumps, he can make it. He jumps, dives, and he, oh, it's like two feet short. And then he dies. 
It's a sad story, really. Huh. That's how life feels right there. A little bit more. Well, just a little bit more. Just a little bit faster. Just a little bit harder. And all the things you were going to do, all the land you were going to leave, all the treasures you had, and you can't even enjoy it because you wore yourself out pounding on those doors. I don't know if you're familiar with the wrestler uh, slash fighter, Ronda Rousey. She was a, she dri- very driven. Very driven, and she found her identity in being a champion, being undefeated. And so she told everybody, let me tell you why I feel valuable, where I get my value in eternity. It's from, I'm the champ and no one defeats me, and I'll let you know about it. So she bragged all the time, I find my identity being a winner. If you watch this last year, she's no longer undefeated. She was interviewed by Ellen. I saw it on Facebook. I don't watch Ellen, just so you know. (laughs) And a very vulnerable, very honest of what happened when she knocked on the door of finding her meaning from her undefeated championship and how it felt to have it all drop from underneath her. Let's watch. Let's talk about uh, the, the loss of this. I mean, everyone expected you to win. I expected you. I mean, the world expected you expected to win. I got, I got, I got clipped in the, like, the first exchange. So I, got, I was knocked out on my feet like the first time I got hit. And, um, that must have surprised you. Well, I, it's, it's hard to really know what's going on. And so um, in that first hit, I cut open my whole mouth and I knocked my teeth loose. It was weird. I had, like, no perception of, like, um, I felt like almost like I couldn't see. Like, I could see, but I couldn't tell, like, how far my hand was from my face or how far she was from me. Like, um, when you sit and you're not moving and you still are aware of where your body is, that's like a part of your brain that's telling you where you are in space. And it was like that kind of turned off. I was, like, swinging blindly. I knew she was out there, but, like, it was, uh, I, I really don't remember most of it. I mean, did you worry for a minute, like, could this be permanent? Did I really hurt myself and maybe I'll, I won't do this again? No, to be honest, like, what I was thinking, like, my honestly, like, my thought, I was like, I was like uh, in the medical room, and I was like down in the corner. I was sitting in the corner, and I was like, "What am I anymore if I'm not this?" And I was literally sitting there and like thinking about killing myself. And then exact second, I'm like, "I'm nothing." I'm like, "What do I do anymore?" And no one gives a shit about me anymore without this. And, and um, to be honest, I looked up and I saw my man, Travis, was standing there, and I was looking up at him and. I was just like, I need to have his babies. I need to stay alive. <laughs> so I was like, really? That was you need to stay alive. <laughs> and uh, I hadn't told anybody that. I think I only told him that. Um, but that was like what I was thinking. Like, I, I was meant to have him when, when I was at my lowest, for sure. First, how honest, right? I'm mean, how honest. I found my whole identity in being the champion. And when I lost that, I didn't just lose something that I'm very disappointed in. I'm devastated because it was what I was defined by. And we always say, well, I would never do that. Don't we all have a flavor we do that with? And notice what she did. Do you see how she's still knocking? She just decided to switch what she was knocking for. No longer do I need to find my meaning from being the champion and the fighter. How ironic that she switches from sort of a, a masculine finding my identity and winning to I'm going to be a baby machine for my boyfriend. Isn't that what she did? 
See, she says, I'm still knocking on heaven's door. I've just decided I know it will find me meaning and purpose. If not this, I'll be a baby machine. And kids are great. Families are great. But they are not a great way to find meaning and purpose. Because then you're trying to extract from your kids meaning. And you smother them with your expectations. Rather than finding security and be able to give to them. So the driven door pounder is another way we do it. The fourth uh, strategy, if you still think it's out there, still searching for it, is you don't blame people or things. You start, because you're driven, you say, it's my fault. It's the self-hatred door pounder. I pound on myself and say, oh, I didn't work hard enough. I didn't push far enough. It's my fault. I didn't knock on enough doors. I didn't push that rock up the hill. What is wrong with me? That I couldn't get a job now that I was laid off at 50. What's wrong with me that I couldn't find a way to... Other people have this stuff and they're happy. Other people have... I've got the perfect life. What's wrong with me? It's a great, very funny book called Unapologetic. Where he describes there is something wrong with us. Here's how he says it. What we're talking about here is not just our human tendency to lurch or stumble or screw up by accident like our passive role as agents of entropy. No, no, no. It's our active inclination to break stuff. Stuff here includes our moods, our promises, the relationships we actually care about, and our own well-being as well as other people's. That's what's broken in us. As well as material objects whose high gloss positively seems to invite a big fat scratch by us. I hope we're on common ground, he says. For most of us, the point eventually arrives when we find we have to take notice of our HPTMTU. That's our human potential to mess things up. He doesn't say mess things up in the book. I did that just for us. So there's a a word that starts with an F there in his version. Our appointment with realization comes at one of the classic moments of adult failure. When a marriage ends. When a career stalls or even crumbles, when a relationship fades away with a child only seen on Saturdays, when a supposedly recreational coke habit turns out to be exercising veto powers over every hope and dream in our life, the HPT MTU dawns on you. You have indeed messed things up. Of course you have. You're human. And that's where we live. That is our normal experience. So Solomon found, Solomon says, listen, I became great. And I excelled more than anyone I'd seen before. And I looked on everything I've done, and I said, God, it is just vanity. It is like chasing after the wind. It's like grasping after the wind. None of those strategies worked. So I decided, as many do, after you try these over decades of your life, I'm going to, I started knocking on heaven's door, I'm going to stop knocking. And there's two strategies here. So can you bring the stop up here? The second type of strategy is you go, I guess there is no meaning out there. I guess there is no real purpose out there. I guess I don't need God to do this in my life. The same thing. Instead of allowing God to breathe into your life meaning and purpose, instead what you say is, thank you, I'm going to just give up on it. I tried for years. I wasted too much time. I think I've finally grown out of this. I'm going to stop knocking on heaven's door. I'm going to stop believing it's out there. I no longer believe in in rainbows and lollipops. But there's two versions of this. The first version I want to call, if there is no door to knock on, I'm going to become the door. I couldn't find the door, so I'm going to become an activist. I'm going to be a do-gooder. I'm going to help lots of people. I'm going to be the doorway by which other people find meaning and purpose. 
And there's a lot of fulfillment in that for a while, being a do-gooder. You're saying there's no ultimate meaning. Meaning is what you do, what you produce, how you help people. Great thing. But helping people, thinking that's going to satisfy you, I'm telling you, it will last for a while, but not very long. Because when you really start helping people, you know what you find out? Well, let me tell you how a Canadian philosopher says it. I love his line because it rings true for me, having worked with the poor in, in, in Atlanta and in Chicago and in Cincinnati. I love how he says it. If you do that, if you decide you're going to find meaning by being the door, by helping other people, that that's where your purpose comes from, you will often find yourself despising the very people you're trying to help. What? Why? Because helping people requires huge capacity, and it is not easy. They are often not grateful or appreciative. Since you're helping them in order to find meaning, you get frustrated when they're not as grateful or impressed by your help. Worse, though they might be initially thankful, they now expect you to help. And then they guilt and shame you for not helping enough. Well, that just describes parenting right there. <laughs> Look at all I'm doing for you. Well, you're supposed to. And isn't this why many of us are so frustrated by constant solicitations? You try and help somebody, give them a leg up, and now they're not grateful, now they're guilty. you got plenty of my wife, you're still helping. When you really get into people's broken lives, and one of the things we're committed to as a church is doing that you know, locally, here, near, and far, as we say. And we love helping people, and we love working alongside people. But I'm telling you, if you define yourself by helping people, you're going to find that people are deeply, deeply broken. And it is a bottomless pit by which if you're trying to extract meaning out of broken people, you are not going to find it. If you do it for a weekend, oh, I felt really good about myself. Went on a mission trip. That's fine. You can get little, little doses of it. But if you try and do that with your life, I'm telling you, having worked in the inner city of Chicago for, for a long time and, and down in Atlanta, you need to have a capacity to give to people who are broken. If you're trying to extract meaning out of them, you're not even really loving them if you think about it. You're using them to make you feel better about yourself. But it's one of the ways we stop knocking is we say, I'm going to be the door that I couldn't find. But as this Canadian philosopher says, it's so true. It just doesn't work. Solomon gets to that place. He says, therefore, I came to the place I just hated life because all the work I'd done was just so distressing to me. I hated all my labors, all my good deeds. I toiled under the sun to do. I'm going to end up having to leave it to my kids and they're probably going to waste it anyway, he says. The second way that we stop knocking is we say, I guess there's no meaning or purpose out there. Uh, there's no door of satisfaction out there. I'm just going to live for myself. I grew out of that nonsense. I grew out of my need for a crutch of religion. Again, no more fairy tales for me. Here's the problem with that strategy. The thing that turned you off, in fact, you might be here saying you're still turned off by religion. You're turned off by the arrogance, the self-righteousness, and the hypocrisy. You found the truth. You know what's right. But now that you said, I'm so thankful I'm not like those people who need crutches. I'm so thankful I grew out of that naive attempt to think that there's meaning and purpose in life. And do you, do you hear it coming? You actually start becoming the very thing you hate. You hated the self-righteousness in religion, and now you're becoming self-righteous about not having religion. And in living for yourself, you've actually decided that you're better than, you know what's the problem in the world, these religious people. Now, the problem is the religious people are saying, no, the problem in the world is those, those, those atheists. The Bible offers a third way. It's not religion, it's not irreligion. It offers to rescue you from your good deeds and your bad deeds. And living for yourself, 
here's what happens. You end up dehumanizing yourself. You turn yourself into an animal. I don't need meaning or purpose or ultimate satisfaction. I just, I'm an, I'm an animal, a, a highly evolved animal, and all I need is to eat and, and, and make love here or there or, or just do some good deeds. Life is what you make out of it. There's no greater meaning or purpose. Solomon says, I tried that, and maybe it'll work for you. I turned my heart, he says in chapter 2, away from God, away from these things. And I lost access to the things I wanted, hope and peace. Money wasn't enough. What I built wasn't enough. What I accomplished wasn't enough. Even a good family wasn't enough. So what do you do, right? Okay, well, if, if all four of those strategies don't work, and I can't knock, knock my way into heaven... And if the stop method doesn't work, what do you do? Where does meaning come from? Well, I love what St. Augustine said in his book, The City of God. If you've never read it before. It's a great quote. He says, the real secret to meaning and purpose and what the Bible offers is that it, it teaches you how to align your loves. Here's how he says it. Living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and partial evaluation of things. That's pretty wordy. Here's the main point. To love things but to love them in the right order. Now, what does that mean? When you make the focal point of your meaning and purpose a relationship, for example, whatever it is, I'm a good son, I'm a good daughter, um, I'm a good boyfriend, I'm a good girlfriend, I'm a good wife, I'm a good husband, I'm a good mom, I'm a good dad. When that's the way you define yourself, that's the central point you build everything on. The pressure on that relationship is so intense. You don't just have a relationship. You have the very worth of your life is defined by this. And you end up destroying the very relationship you love because you're trying to suck eternal meaning out of it. You're trying to, to pull all of your satisfaction out of it. And you end up losing your relationship with your son and daughter because they feel smothered by you or your spouse. Because it just can't sustain all that pressure, can't sustain all that need to meet this giant break in the cup we all have. If career becomes your number one thing and your whole life is centered on your career, the pressure, you end up sacrificing other loves, things you care about, your marriage, your kids. Because career defines you and the things you care about begin to wither on the vine because you got your loves out of order. If money becomes the number one thing you put in the center of your life, you end up exploiting people you care about because the people aren't as important as the money. And here's how the Bible solves this. It's so neat. It's so practical. The Bible tells you, as you're knock-knocking for heaven's door, what you're really longing for is the unconditional, imperishable love of God that defines you and everything else in your life can be filled up by that purpose and can hang on the security of that. Let me show you what that might look like. I'm going to bring the loved one up here. Kenny, when you begin to say, I want God to breathe into my life, instead of huffing and puffing on everything, I'm going to allow God to breathe into these areas of my life. So I say, God, instead of trying to extract love, earn love, find love, I want you to breathe that into me but as a free gift. So God breathes it into us. This is what happened at the cross. I want to make this one nice and tight. All right. So God says the main way, the main security you're going to have in your life, the main way you find your identity and purpose and meaning is going to be from what I did for you, not what from you would do, do for me. And that purpose, that meaning, that ultimate satisfaction will be the center point. This will be your first love. This is the one thing that's not dependent upon you. It's not religion. That's what you do for God. It's about grace, what he did for you. 
and you say, how I see myself is not based on how my lawn looks or doesn't look, not based on how my quarterly results look or, or didn't do this year, not based on whether my kids obey or don't obey. The main center point of my life is how God feels toward me based on what he did. Then, go and grab the inflated one there and bring one more up. And then you say, God, I want you to take this new purpose and meaning in my life and take all the other loves in my life and fill them up. So take something like people. People, the Bible teaches, live forever. They're eternal. And so people, instead of trying to get meaning or purpose out of people, you say, I'm filled up by the love of God. So now I'm going to love my kids, not because I need them to feel good about myself. No, no, no. I'm going to align my loves in such a way. It looks like we need two at once. Here, good. Here, I'll fill that one up. Your identity. Thank you. He said, God, I'm going to find my identity, not based on what I do, but based on what you did for me. And sure enough, now things are going to come and go in my identity. Things are going to go well or not go well during different seasons of life. But I'm going to have them all hang on the central love, which is what God did for me. It's not working as well as it did in rehearsal, I'll tell you that. Go ahead and bring me my next one up. It looked really pretty when I did in rehearsal. Do one more. Work. See, that's an imperishable thing to build your life on right there. Work. Now, instead of me trying to get meaning out of work, what happens is I say, God, you've given me talents and skills. You've put me on this planet for a certain time. And so work becomes something which God breathes into your work as well. And now work becomes something that's not temporal. In fact, God says at the end of your life, he rewards you for your work. So what you do in this life doesn't just have temporal meaning, it has eternal meaning. So who you care about when they're, when they're not grateful, when they don't care, when they don't appreciate what you're doing, all of a sudden all of this has an incredible meaning because it all hangs on the central idea of what God's done for you. And so now all these other loves in your life, work, people, your identity, they're all expressions of the security you have and they're all filled up with the very meaning of God. Because now instead of trying to get your meaning from work or from people or from things, you have meaning. And so when work's not going well, you're, you're sad, you're disappointed, but you're not devastated. When some relationship's not going as well as you hoped, it's disappointing, but it's not devastating. Because the one thing that does matter, the one thing that you define yourself by is secure. And that's not only the thing that defines you, it's the thing that fills every other aspect of you. So you begin to build a life. You begin to build an identity with all these good things. But these good things do not become ultimate things. I can tell you one of the things that I find in my life is I continually bounce back and forth by doing what St. Augustine said. Instead of aligning my loves properly, I do it in my life about as successfully as I just did this. <laughs> a good idea, a nice thought, it worked well in run-through, but oh my goodness, the hassle of saying, I'm not defined by what kind of a father I am, though I want to be a good father. I'm not defined by what kind of a husband I am, though I want to be a good husband. I'm not defined by whether or not the sermon went well, thank goodness, <laughs> or the object lesson went well. I, I, I'm going to fix it, hopefully, by 1110 service, but if I don't... I'm not defined by the object lesson. I'm not defined by each particular sermon or the applause of the audience. And do you see how that gives you security? 
Because now you can look at your work objectively and say, hey, let's work on that. It doesn't define me. It's an expression of what's important to me. And that's what Solomon finds in his journey. Four ways to start knocking that will ultimately lead you to heaven's door. Two ways to give up on heaven that will ultimately lead you to heaven's door. And God says when you find heaven's door, you're going to open and find grace. And that grace is this. You can have an identity of what I did for you on the cross. I died for you and I loved you. And you have meaning and purpose. And now go do good deeds. Love people. Don't use people for your own spiritual resume to get into heaven. Love your work, but don't be defined by your work. And keep your loves aligned, and you won't destroy the things you love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, being so honest in Solomon's journey. Thank you for the journey that we're all on. And I just ask that as we go on that journey, Father, you would help us to get through the, the knocking that we're on quicker. Maybe if we still are in the naive phase or in the angry phase and it's affecting other things around us. God, that you would woo us, that you would speak to us, that you would whisper to us. And as we begin to find, even wrestle with, even experiment with the possibility that your love could be our defining characteristic. God, that it would lower the expectations and the pressures on the things we care about. And that would allow those things to thrive and flourish rather than to be suffocated and overcome. We thank you for the journey that we're on and the way you use it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you all for being here today. We'll continue our journey uh, with more science experiments next week and Blowing in the Wind. Thanks. See you next week. Can you tell me if that's true here?